All right, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. What we just read uh, is the end of history as we know it and the beginning of eternity. What was just read for us is the scene in which everyone who is truly a child of God will dwell forever and ever and ever. There is no end to the kingdom of God in which his children will reign with him. So tonight, what we are going to title this as we dive into Revelation chapter 21 and the beginning of 22 is the eternal destiny of the believer. The eternal destiny of the believer is the scene that is described and laid out for us in Revelation chapter 21 and the beginning of Revelation chapter 22. Now, we are coming off of a very important chapter. We saw last week a scene and a a, a location that's known as the Millennial Kingdom. The Millennial Kingdom, which we saw last week, is is a time period after Jesus comes and establishes his reign on earth. He he sets up a, a, a throne and a kingdom, and he reigns for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand years, there are a group of individuals, a very large group of individuals, whom Satan turns, uh, or rather than turning, he he influences and convinces them to attack the city of Jesus Christ. And they do that, or at least they attempt to. They surround the city of Christ on which he is reigning on the throne. And as they are about to attack, they are burned to death with fire from heaven. In an instant, all of the enemies of God are wiped out. And that then leads to a scene that is labeled, we labeled it last week, and this is absolutely a true statement, the most terrifying scene ever, where all of God's enemies stand before what is called the great white throne. And they are judged based on whether or not, it says their names were written in the book of life. In other words, they're judged based on whether or not they are actually children of God, whether or not they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. For those who have not, we're told that they are cast into eternal separation from God, eternal suffering. Revelation chapter 20 calls it the eternal lake of fire. Tonight, we see what happens to those whose names are found in the book of life. What happens to the believer? If you are a believer, I want us to be clear, this text is answering what happens to you? What are you going to do forever? Where are you going to be forever if you have made the decision to follow Christ? What is your destiny? What is your eternal destiny? There is no place in scripture that shows that more clearly than Revelation chapter 21 and 22. This is the end of the book of Revelation and it is a fitting end. Let me tell you where we're going just so you all can be prepared. We are wrapping up really the, the, the storyline of the book of Revelation tonight. This is the end of the story that we have been telling. Next week, the book, John gives some concluding comments on the end of the book and, and he closes it down. We're going to see that at the end of Revelation chapter 22. And then the week after that, we're going to have a little fun. We're going to do a Revelation Q&A, which if you've been paying attention at all, you have questions. Okay? Because 
I've been preaching it, and I have questions. Okay, so if you, over the course of this study, have anything that's been unclear, first of all, that means you're human. Uh, but second of all, I want to give you guys an opportunity to, to, to vocalize and ask some of the questions that you may have in the book of Revelation. So come up with something, okay? Uh, if you have anything, anything end times related, I can't promise that I can answer any of those questions, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the best that I can based on the book of Revelation to give some clarity to much of what we have been talking about. So tonight we finished the storyline. Next week we finished the book and the week after that a Q&A and uh, then we'll start a new study after that and you'll have to wait to find out exactly what that is. What do you think of when you hear the word paradise? You hear the word paradise. What is the scene that comes to your mind and that comes to your attention? If you were to close your eyes and envision paradise, what is it that comes to mind? I would guess that if we were to go around this room and ask that question for each individual, the answer would be a little bit different. Now, let's just have some fun for a second. How many of you, when you think of the term paradise, think of the beach? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And it's, it's not, it's, it's like the perfect beach, right? It is the softest of sand. It is the most perfect palm trees and it's crystal clear water. And it's not raining outside, right? It's sunny, but there's a breeze. Perfection. Well, let me tell you something. I grew up at a beach. You know what the beach has? No, 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 no. Let me, let me let you into my, into my, into my mind a little bit. I hate the beach. Wow. Anyone been stung by a jellyfish? Okay. No good. No good. Anyone ever found themselves surrounded by stingrays? Worst thing ever. Okay. Anyone ever been told that there's sharks all around you? You can't see them, but they're there. Terrifying. Horrifying. Sand gets everywhere. It's gross. You can't even, you just, it's, you can't get rid of the sand. And then you get in your car and your car bears that sand for months and years and decades and centuries into the scene that we see tonight forever and ever. The sand never goes away. I, the beach is not paradise. How many of you, when you envision paradise, picture mountains? Okay. Okay. Yeah, don't even get me started on mountains. I mean, you go out in the mountains, you don't take a shower for like weeks. That's disgusting. It's like camping. Ugh. I can't go 24 hours without taking a shower. And like campers that go days and weeks. Oh my goodness. Uh, that is not paradise. That is not paradise. What else? Give me what else do you picture. Give me something. What? Outer space? All right. All right. That's your paradise. Okay, what else? What else? What? A, a, like, like, just a little, like you're trapped in a garden? That stuff's creepy, man. What else? What's Paradise Palms? Fortnite. Okay, how many of you picture eternal gaming? Okay. What else? Yeah. It's like this really bright space with 
bright place with clouds, a waterfall, and sparkles. <laughs> Here's the thing. We're going to call it right there. Here's the thing. For each one of us, paradise is a little different. Because we have things that we enjoy and things that we love on the earth. But ultimately, you know what our experience is on the earth? It is a broken one. It's a broken one. And the best that we can possibly imagine about paradise doesn't even begin to explain what heaven will be like forever. We are coming on the scene of the most terrifying point in all of history, and we're entering the time of absolute paradise. That's an important storyline that we have to follow as we walk through this. The believer's destiny immediately follows the most terrifying scene ever. The believer's destiny immediately follows the most terrifying scene ever. I want to give you, before we jump into this text tonight, a little bit of the storyline of the Bible as a whole. There is only one time in history when paradise has truly been attained on this earth. All that we imagine of paradise falls short. But there is one time in history when paradise was achieved, and that is in the very beginning of the book of the Bible. You are in Revelation 21. If you go to the opposite end of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, we see creation. And we see Adam and Eve placed in a garden. It's specifically titled the Garden of Eden. God created the world. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And as he looked at his creation... He said, it is good. It's good. Something that could not be said again for the rest of history in the way that it was in the beginning. It is good. Said another way, it is perfect. Said another way, it is paradise. In the Garden of Eden, there was no pain. There was no suffering. There were no tears. There was nothing that was broken. Mankind, mankind walked with God in the Garden. Side by side, man and God would walk in the Garden. Mankind was given a task to rule the world, to reign over the creation, to subdue it under his authority to reign over it. But then mankind chose to sin. Rebellion was the choice that they took and that brought a curse upon the entire universe. Sin entered the world and with sin came pain and suffering and brokenness. Every man in his core and every woman in her core became defined by their sinfulness. In the core of their heart was opposition to God. But throughout history, God graciously made a way for mankind to be reconciled to be restored to a proper relationship with God, even though they were alienated from him in their sinfulness. Ultimately, that came through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for the sins of mankind, that we might have life in his name if we would believe and trust in him. And for those who have done that, Christians are no longer slaves to sin. 
Every man born since the curse is born a slave to sin. But those who have repented of their sin and who follow Jesus Christ are no longer slaves to sin, but they still live in a cursed world. And they still feel the effects of that curse in their life as they battle sinfulness that's still present in their own heart. Oh, they're no longer slaves to sin if they're children of God. But they still battle it, both around and within them, because we still feel the effects of that curse. This is where we stand today. This is where you stand today in history as we wait for Jesus' return. But as we've seen in the book of Revelation, when Jesus returns, he will wipe out those who would not submit themselves to him. Ultimately, that includes the ultimate enemy, who is Satan. He will destroy any remnant of sinfulness and they will be judged and sentenced to eternal separation from God. Even any remnant of brokenness upon the earth will be melted down and made perfect, never to be broken again. All that is broken in the world will be restored. And at that point, the paradise of the Garden of Eden is restored upon the earth. Man will once again walk with God. We could say it this way the storyline of history is paradise, curse paradise when mankind was created they were created in that paradise but once the curse took place it is only those who make the choice to repent of the sinfulness that they are responsible for that the ultimate paradise will be given We could say it another way, and I think that this is helpful for us to comprehend it this way. The brackets around history is is paradise. History is bracketed by paradise. Earth was created that way, and in God's perfect plan, earth will ultimately end that way with no sin and no brokenness and no pain and no suffering. This was God's ultimate plan from the beginning, and he will see it through to completion. This is the eternal destiny of every believer. Many theologians call the point in time that we're looking at tonight the eternal state for this paradise will never end. As we break this down tonight, we're going to look at that eternal state of paradise and we're going to break it down this way. Three focal points that reveal the eternal state of paradise. Three focal points that reveal the eternal state of paradise. The first focal point that's reviewed in this text is the renewed universe. The renewed universe. As we walk through this text, as we break this down, we're going to see three kind of scenes that are zoomed in on. And in each one of those scenes, there's one thing that is particularly the focus. And, and, and John is being shown this scene and this focal point that he would come to a fuller understanding of the nature of the eternal state of paradise. This has been the goal of the entire book of Revelation. It has all been pointing to this point in time. If you remember back to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, when, when John is writing the message from Jesus Christ to these seven different churches and he's saying you are perhaps in in sin here and you must overcome you must grow he writes and if you overcome that I will give you a reward 
If you overcome that, here is the precious gift that you will be given to others. He says you're doing good, but hard times are coming and you must remain faithful. If you overcome that, I will give you something good. All of those good things that are described ultimately find their resolution in these, in, in these two chapters. Everything that the believer is hoping for and longing for as a gift from God comes to its full fruition here. So to show us that, to show us the ultimate reward for every believer, we're shown three focal points. The first one is the renewed universe. The renewed universe. Let's, let's walk through this, this first scene we're going to be told of a new heaven and a new earth. Look at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's a new heaven, a new earth. There is this, this, this newness to the earth and to, to, to the cosmos, to everything, to the entirety of the universe. There's something new about it. And the question that we have to ask is, how is it new? Well, in verse one, verses 1 and 2, we see terminology described to them that implies that these are renewed entities. It's a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Now, all of those things were present in the original universe as we recognize that heaven and earth and Jerusalem the capital city. But here they're described as new. They're described as, as something that has been renewed. Also, there's this fascinating statement at the end of verse one. And there is no longer any sea. Okay, all of you who say the beach is paradise. Well, there's, there's like, it's fascinating. There's no ocean. When the new heaven and the new earth show up, we're told there is no longer any sea. Now, don't understand that to be that there's no more water. We're going to see water actually in 22. I think there's still going to be lakes and rivers, and even massive bodies of water. I think probably what's in mind here is that for, for whatever reason, the, 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 the entity of like ocean water or salt water, for whatever reason, is gone. It, we could say all water is drinking water and it's perfect water. It's like Dasani everywhere. Okay. There's no longer any sea. How is this new heaven and new earth new? First of all, they're described as renewed. But we're told as we read further that the curse is reversed. The curse that originally separated mankind and all of creation from God that caused paradise to cease, that curse is reversed. Look at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them. Look at verse four. There will be no, no tears. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. All suffering is gone. God dwelling among man and all suffering wiped away to never return again. So God among men, no tears, no death, no pain. How else is the curse reversed? Look at verse five. He who sits on the throne says, behold, I am making all things new. I'm making it all new. 
Everything that was broken by the curse. I am making it new. I am making it perfect. I am making it good again. That's paradise. That is the renewed universe. So who will be there? Who will be there? Well, verses six and seven answer that. He says, then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water life without cost. I will give this gift to him who thirsts. Verse 7, it describes it more. He who overcomes will inherit these things. He who answers the call that I gave to them in the book of Revelation, he who remains faithful, he who repents, he who is a true follower of Jesus Christ, he is the one who will inherit all that is described here. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Look at verse 7 again. I will be his God. He will be my son. But, but, verse 8, for the cowardly, And for the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There's only two categories of people on the earth. Those who inherit paradise. And those who who inherit a destiny in in what's described as the lake of fire, the second death, separation from God and the paradise that he gives and eternal suffering. If you read and study the book of Revelation, if you take it to be true, it's not even a decision. It's a no-brainer. It's, it's, it's as if someone came up to you and said, would you like to receive $1 billion from me or do you want me to take everything you own and destroy everyone you love? Which one do you want? It's, it's, it's a no-brainer. That's one of the messages of the book of Revelation. You would never read this and think, I want to be opposed to that God. Not only is opposition to him lead to absolute misery, but faithfully following him lives, leads to inheriting paradise, perfection. The first focal point is this renewed universe where there is nothing broken. All forever is perfectly good. There's a, an emphasis that I want us to see and understand here. The new heaven and the new earth are absolute perfection. This destiny of the true believer is absolute perfection. That's what's being emphasized in this first focal point. It is perfect. There is no suffering. There is no curse. All is made new. All is good. That leads us then to a second focal point that continues to reveal the eternal state of paradise. And I think what we're going to see in this, in this scene is that it's, it's kind of telescopic focal points here. So we start off, and, and what we just saw was the earth, not even just the earth. We saw, like, the universe, the earth, the heavens, everything. It's all made new. Now, the second focal point, we're going to zoom in. We're going to zoom in on a specific location on that earth, and that location is the second focal point. That location is the glorious city. 
the glorious city. We start to see that explained in verse 10 of chapter 21. John gets carried away, he says in verse 10. Then I was carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. So John gets taken away to this massive mountain on the new universe. And his attention is directed in verse 10 to a city. Look at how it's described. He showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. His direction is pointed towards this holy city, a holy city with the name of Jerusalem. Now, this was preceded in verse 9 with a very important message. Skip back up to verse 9 when John receives a message from one of the angels that he's been interacting with. He says, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. This holy city, Jerusalem, is introduced as the very bride of Christ. Now, we've seen that term bride used multiple times through the book of Revelation. Here it refers to a city. Elsewhere, it's referred to to the actual, the the church, the, the children of God that are redeemed by God. But here, this city of Jerusalem is called the bride of Christ, the bride of the Lamb. And we're going to see that it is inhabited by those who, who are the church. His attention is drawn on the holy city. It's drawn to Jerusalem. And what is this city doing? Oh, this is weird. Maybe the end of verse 10. It's coming down out of heaven from God. <laughs> okay, so he sees a city coming down out of heaven. It's explained as the capital city of the new world. Look at how it's described, verse 11. It has the glory of God. It has the glory of God. What takes place through the rest of this chapter is a description of this city that is descending from heaven. We're going to fly through it and see what ultimately all of this is all about. Check out this city. First, we're drawn to its brilliance. It has, in verse 11, the glory of God. Her brilliance is like a diamond, a jasper it's described as. That's a clear stone. This city has the glory of God, and it shines like a diamond. Next, our attention is drawn to its walls and its gates. Verse 12, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates were 12 angels, the names which were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And there was a wall. Verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Okay, so we're described, it's described for us here, this city descending, glory of God, brilliance like a diamond. It has gates. There are angels at those gates. Those angels bear the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It has walls. Those walls have foundation stones in them. Those foundation stones bear the names of the 12 apostles. In other words, what you have represented in this city are the Israelites and the church. You have the the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, God's Old Testament people, and his New Testament people. But there's more described. Look at verse 14. I'm sorry, look at at verse, verse 16. We're told the layout of this city. 
The city's laid out as a square. <laughs> and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod. The rod was given him in verse 15. Here's how big it is. 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. Huh. Okay, so city descending. Glory of God shining like a diamond. It's got walls, angels guarding the gates. They bear the names of Israel. It's got foundation stones in its walls. Those bear the names of the apostles. Also, it's massive. It's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. That, my friends, is a cube as big as half of the United States. Our attention is drawn back to the walls in verse 17. Its walls are 72 yards. Okay, we don't know if that's height or if that's width. But there's one dimension on these walls that measures 72 yards. These are big, big walls. Check out the little comment at the end of verse 17. This shows us that these measurements are literal. This is hilarious. It's 1,500 miles. The walls are 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. Okay, so whether you're measuring it with the human or the literal angelic measurements, they're the same. It's 72 yards. It's a weird comment, but he includes it. I love it. Next, we're told of the materials of this wall. The materials of this wall. In verses 18 all the way through 21, Taylor nailed it, so I'm not even going to try. whole bunch of crazy sounding gems that make up these walls. The walls are made up of gems. Gem walls. Okay? Like, oh my goodness, this is crazy city. Unbelievable city. Look down at verse 21. The 12 gates, they were made of pearl. Massive pearls. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. There's no oceans, but there's some freaking massive oysters. <laughs> Check this out. The city, it has streets. Its streets are made of pure gold. Pure gold. Like transparent glass. Next, our attention is drawn to God himself who dwells in this city. Verse 22, there was no temple in it. No meeting place of God for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. He is the temple. Verse 23, he's the light. The city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. There's no sun, no need for a moon, no need for light because God himself and the lamb shine and brighten and enlighten everything within it. But not only within the city, but verse 24, the nations will walk by its light. The nations will walk by the light of this city. The light of this city comes from God himself. And they will bring their glory into it. 
in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember, this is a perfect world and there is nothing broken that could ever enter into it because there's nothing broken left. It is all paradise. Why all of these details? What's the point of all of this? I think it's simple. The city of God is unlike anything we have ever seen. It's unlike anything that we could ever even imagine. I mean, in your mind's eye, picture this city. It doesn't work. You can't picture this city. John, we've said throughout this book, is grasping for any terminology that he can possibly use to describe what it is he's seen, but it's otherworldly. It's otherworldly. It is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth because the old has passed away and it's unlike anything we could ever imagine. And this is what we kind of started with tonight. Paradise goes beyond anything we could begin to imagine. But this is what it looks like. That then brings us to a third focal point. A third focal point, a third description of paradise. Three focal points that reveal the eternal state of paradise. The third thing we see is the reigning God. Our focus is addressed specifically to the God who reigns in this renewed universe. To the God who reigns in this glorious city. So we saw the universe as a whole. We saw the glorious city, and then our attention is drawn specifically to the throne where God reigns in this city. Chapter 22 tells us about this. First, we're told of a river. Look at verse 1. Then he showed me a river, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, and it comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So as we zoom in further, John's direction is, attended to, uh, is, is directed towards a river. And, and this river flows with water of life. Life-giving water. Now, it's not that any of the people who are indwelling this renewed universe are, are in need of life. Eternal life has been given to them. But water of life is indicative of the water that fills this planet. It's, it's the very water of life. Everything about the world is eternal life. Even the water. Not only the water, but also the trees. Check this out. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. So there is water of life. There is the tree of life. It bears 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were healing for the nations. This may be the very tree that we saw in the Garden of Eden. It's a little bit of a strange layout here. You have this river coming out of the throne, and then on either side of the river is the tree. One tree that is somehow on both sides of the river, but the river is flowing out from the throne. Again, he's grasping for terminology here. And this fruit gives healing to the nations. Again, remember, there's nothing broken here. This is not to say that the the nations, those who fill the world, need healing, but that everything about this world is indicative of life and health. It gives its, its, its very leaves are health. That's implied even further in verse three. 
there will no longer be any curse. The curse is gone. It is absolute perfection. Because God and the Lamb reign over the world. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. God is ruling on the throne. There is no longer anyone who is opposed to him. And there is no longer any sin and there is no longer any curse. Everything about God, everything in this scene is life-producing. Eternal life is indicative of everything in this scene. And his children are there. Look at the end of verse 3. His bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. (laughs) And his name will be on their foreheads. They will look at the face of God. Which if you're familiar with your Bible at all, throughout all of history has not been possible. If you look upon me, you will die. God says, but there is no death here and there is no sin here. And so we can look into the very face of God and we can see him and we will bear his mark on our foreheads. We will be marked by him in verse five. There will not be any night and there will not be any need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. Everything about the scene in which our focus is driven to the reigning God is so clear. Eternal life flows from God. Life is complete in God, and we will reign with God. The perfected earth. The perfected earth in which God reigns, and we reign with him forever and ever and ever. This is the destiny of the believer, and it will never end. It will never end. This is how the Bible ends. With perhaps the greatest invitation. You want this gift. The alternative is the most terrifying scene ever. But this is eternal paradise, which we cannot even begin to comprehend. In which eternal life flows from God. Life is complete in God and we will reign with God. If you have any questions about wanting to make sure that when this happens, you're there, don't miss the opportunity to talk to your leaders about that tonight. For the rest of us, let's hope and long for this day. Let's remain faithful until this day when God wins and reigns victoriously upon the earth.